Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Mina B, and I'm a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles. I'll be chatting with experts, wellness advocates, and others about the power of community care in improving your mental health. We'll delve into topics such as friendships, managing difficult relationships, and most importantly, how to cultivate belonging and support in our lives. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Dr. Jeremy Nobel is a primary care physician, public health practitioner, and award-winning poet with faculty appointments at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Medical School. He is the founder and president of the Foundation for Art and Healing. His signature initiative, Project Unlonely, has gained national visibility, addressing the personal and public health challenges of loneliness and social isolation. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm really interested in having this conversation with you and also just very excited because you've been doing research on loneliness for quite some time now, actually even before 2020, which is the year that a lot of us learned about loneliness being an epidemic, but I know you've been studying it way before that. And I really am just really excited to jump into the conversation to learn more about loneliness. But before we get there, I also know you are the founder and president of an organization called the Foundation for Art and Healing, and you have a signature initiative called Project Unlonely. So can you first tell us about the Foundation for Art and Healing and what inspired you to start that? It would be a pleasure. So... We started the Foundation for Art and Healing almost 20 years ago, really with the mission of exploring and engaging creative expression as a path to health and well-being for individuals and community. It wasn't an accident that we started right after 9-11. In part, it was in response to the trauma of that event in much the same way that we're responding to the trauma of COVID in many ways right now. But we were able to see how creative expression as a brain modulator actually changes how our brains make sense of the world we're in, can change how our bodies respond, how our cognition responds with some very positive benefits on health. Now, you mentioned Project on Lonely. It is our signature initiative, but it started, as you mentioned, well before the pandemic. Loneliness has been increasing as a public health problem for a few decades now. And we started and launched Project Unlonely about 10 years ago with three goals. First, to increase awareness of loneliness and its toxicity. And I'm sure we'll talk more about how loneliness can be harmful. But also to reduce the stigma around it so people will talk about it, engage with it, learn how to navigate it. And the third is to produce and make available creative expression-based programming so people can have the experience of being more connected in some authentic ways. Mm. Can you tell us what is creative expression for people who may have never even heard of that term before? Sure. So creative expression 
is really the beautiful experience we have of using our imagination to visualize something, to ask ourselves what's possible in certain situations, and then in that process, make something. So creativity almost always results in a creative artifact of some sort. Now, the traditional big four types of creativity are music, visual art, movement, that's where dance comes in, and language art, which is things like poetry and novels and so on. But there's creative activity in our daily lives in other ways, too, like culinary arts, what we decide to make for dinner, or textile arts. You know, many people love to knit or quilt or crochet. And then gardening and all the creative work that goes into imagining and planning a garden, something a friend of mine calls the world's slowest performance art. Mm, I love that. My mom is really big on gardening. And I think my creative expression is, of course, outside of writing. But when I'm in the kitchen, I love to bake. And so I love that you gave those prime examples for people to realize this also can be a form of creative expression. I'm also wondering, Jeremy, do you ever find yourself dealing with people who are resistant to creative expression? Because a lot of what you're sharing, too, honestly sounds like teaching adults how to engage back into the form of play, which I think a lot of us lose the art of playing. And so are there roadblocks to really helping people feel safe enough or even take away the barriers or negative mental thought processes that they have around creative expression so that they can freely just engage in that task? Absolutely. And I love that you use the word play. Making art is a playful, joyous, celebratory experience. Somewhere along the line, right? You know, because we know kids love to make art. Right. <laughs> if you give kids art supplies, they're at it, right? You have to kind of haul them away to dinner or, you know, get cleaned up or whatever. But somewhere along the line, many of us experience a kind of sensitivity to being judged for the quality of what we've made. And so, of course, you know, when you're at risk for judgment, often you become very, very cautious. And so part of the playfulness here and what we introduce in our programming is invitations of how you can get past that self-judgment, that reserve, and just give yourself the freedom to express. And when people have that in the right supportive environment, often playful, <laughs> They feel invited to move forward with the creative work in a way they may not have for years. And it's really terrific to watch. That's really wonderful to hear. You know, I hope that this really encourages people to feel more inclined to play a little, because I also want to shift really quickly to something that you said earlier, and this kind of now dives us into our conversation around loneliness. You said you've been studying this pretty much 10 years ago or maybe even more. And I'm curious to know, 10 years ago, what was happening in our society or what was the thing that made you realize we really need to be focusing on loneliness and community and the impacts of a lack of connection and how harmful loneliness can be? Yeah. So as you know, I'm trained as a medical doctor. I'm an internal medicine physician. And I also work as a public health practitioner. So I have some graduate training in that. And I've also worked at Harvard in public health for a number of years. And as a public health practitioner, I began to start seeing and sensing that loneliness was starting to make its appearance. Now, it wasn't brand new. People have been talking about loneliness in public health, I think, since the 
the 80s is when it really started. And uh, particularly at first in older adults, there was a lot of recognition about loneliness in older adults. But then through, you know, the early part of the 21st century, it seems like loneliness started invading our lives in lots of ways. Where we first came across it was actually through some of the support programs we ran through the Foundation for Art and Healing to, to be helpful for people dealing with various trauma situations. Now, for the audience, trauma very simply defined is a state of sustained injury, right? So it's injury. So you're hurt, you know, in a trauma situation. Well, when you're hurt, then you need to recover from that pain. And some of the recovery, if it's a physical wound, can be quite rapid. But the recovery sometimes from the emotional burden of trauma takes a while. And when that recovery is really slowed down or difficult to achieve, that's called post-traumatic stress syndrome or PTSD. And so we started working in that area after 9-11 because there was quite a lot of trauma. But then we began to see that trauma actually is not just military trauma or results of 9-11 or, you know, look at these horrible events in Maui when your house is burned in an unanticipated climate-related event, but just the daily experiences people often encounter are quite traumatic. You know, a simple one is aging. You lose friends, loved ones. Sometimes you start having physical impairment or hearing loss that makes it harder to stay in touch with the world. All of this is loss and all of this is trauma. So we began to expand our programming to look at trauma situations that were not the usual ones. One of these was in chronic illness and diabetes. And we launched a program to support people with diabetes and, you know, coming at it with that trauma-informed lens. And it was a very successful program. But one of the things that was most notable was when we asked people what it was about our programming with the arts and the conversations that followed, they said that they felt more connected and less lonely. And we weren't anticipating that. We thought, wow, that's so interesting. We wonder what's going on. So I started doing more research on loneliness and began to see it everywhere, although it wasn't really talked about. So we saw that as a big opportunity because here we had a way to use the arts to address a significant problem that as far as loneliness, that as far as anyone can tell, was getting more challenging, more prevalent, affecting more people with a wide variety of negative complications. We can talk more about that. And then here we had something that could work. So we pushed all of our kind of proverbial poker chips to the center of the table and really focused our signature initiative on loneliness and project on lonely. That's how we got started. Gotcha. Thank you so much for outlining trauma and how it can manifest for someone. Because I think that's really important for people to have an understanding of how trauma impacts the body as well as our mental health. But can you also outline for us what is loneliness? I'm so glad you asked because loneliness, despite it's something that every one of us encounters, for many people, they're a little bit confused about it. So let me start with just saying loneliness is not the same as being alone. Loneliness is a subjective state, meaning it's how we feel. You can't measure it with a blood test like you do diabetes, for instance, or any other external factor. You have to ask somebody how they're feeling. And what it's often related to, it is defined as the gap between the social connection we want to have with others, we aspire to, sometimes we dream of, 
and what we feel we actually do have. And as that gap gets larger, we describe that as greater and greater loneliness. Being alone is just the objective state of being isolated. There's no one around. Now, sometimes being alone can be such a positive state with rich opportunities to contemplate and be in touch with yourself. We have a high-class word for it. We call it solitude. But it's different than loneliness. Loneliness is always a negative feeling that there's something missing that we need. And so that's what loneliness is. Mm, I love that you share the difference between solitude and spending time alone and also feeling lonely. Because even in my own life, when I'm practicing solitude, I feel nourished, I feel restored, I feel centered. But as you said, when you feel lonely, there's normally this negative emotion attached to it as well, where I feel isolated, I feel sad. I mean, I think that really helps people identify and put into perspective, what am I actually feeling in the moment? I'm also curious to know, do you feel like there are certain demographics that are more prone to loneliness? I know you talked about ageism and how that can be a form of trauma, right? You're getting older and, you know, maybe empty nester syndrome where your kids are moving out and just dynamics are shifting. But I'm curious to know, are there other demographics as well that might be prone to loneliness? That is an absolutely fantastic question, and it really gives me a chance to explain something that took me a while to sort out, but I think it's really important, which is loneliness is not a disease. It's a brain state. It's a mood. It's an emotion. And similar to another emotion we know very well, love, there are many types of love, and there are many types of loneliness. So there's romantic love, there's love of country, love of family, love of community, and so on, right? They're not all the same kind of feeling. And we have identified through our research three different types of loneliness, and they all matter a lot right now. So the first, and what most people think of, is what we call psychological loneliness. Where's my connection to another person? Someone who has my back, someone who remembers me, who cares about me. Right. We need those people in our lives. So that's psychological loneliness. And usually when you talk about loneliness, that's what comes to mind for people. But we found that there are two other very important types. Another one actually has to do with whether we're connected to social groups and feel comfortable navigating society or whether we feel systematically and unfairly excluded. So imagine that there's a room filled with people. And you have to go into that room and you ask yourself the question, is my arrival in that room anticipated, welcomed, and safe? Mm -hmm. And if it is, you're going to feel a sense of belonging when you go into that room. If it's not, you're going to feel maybe sometimes even a sense of dread, certainly a sense of caution, right? And so that's a different kind of loneliness where you feel excluded by others. That's different than someone having your back, right? Right. And that, you know, taken to scale, that's racism. That's systematic bias, which is a big problem in our society and getting worse. So that's the second type of loneliness. We sometimes call it societal loneliness. The third, which I think everyone has a sense of but often doesn't talk about, is wondering what is your connection to the universe? What was here before I arrived? What will be here after I depart? 
Does my life have meaning, consequence? Do I matter? So whether you use, you know, the 20th century word existential or the even older word spiritual, this is another kind of disconnection. It's another kind of deep loneliness that's actually been recognized and causes a lot of distress if you just feel you don't fit into the world. So the reason I'm spending time with this, because you asked a very good question about are there demographics more or less vulnerable, it really depends on the type of loneliness. And at different ages and different circumstances, different subgroups, you could be more or less vulnerable to psychological loneliness, societal exclusion, or this uncomfortable feeling that you don't really fit into the world at all. That's such a beautiful way to break down the different concepts of loneliness, you know, because I think sometimes we feel alone, but we don't know why. And I really love how you outlined even the concept of belonging. You know, was my presence anticipated? Is it welcomed? And am I safe here? And I imagine that can also apply to when we're trying to meet people and just gain new connections and new friendships. Like, am I safe in this relationship? So I really love that you're sharing different ways people can look inward and express themselves and recognize this is the type of loneliness that I'm feeling. I'm also curious to know, when it comes to the concept of loneliness, do you feel like technology is also playing a role in why people are feeling lonely? Yes. And I assume you're talking about digital technology. Yes. Although it may it may be driverless cars too. Maybe <laughs> specifically social media. I'll name it specifically social media. Yes. And you know, I do have a book coming out or out already on loneliness, really on disconnection. It's called Project on Lonely healing our crisis of disconnection. And I actually made the commitment to write that book before the pandemic. So it was quite a journey trying to make sense of loneliness as it was changing. And one of the things that was changing the most was our relationship to the modern world, to modernity. And how were we connecting? And yes, you know, thank God we had Zoom because could you imagine if it was just, you know, kind of group telephone calls? Yeah. <laughs> But it was still a very odd thing that people you'd worked with or family members known for years that you could only connect through this odd digital space. And that's not even social media. That's a totally separate kind of disconnection. So, yes, social media is a major challenge for maintaining connection, particularly in certain demographics because of how they use it. So if you're a teenager or young adult, often social media is a kind of social dance where you're always performing and comparing and posting what often looks like a highlight reel of your life, right? And you really care about whether you get likes and reposts and follows because it validates you. It gives you a sense of positive self-esteem and identity and so on. So imagine if you're not getting those likes, then it starts to erode your self-esteem. You start feeling anxious and nervous about even trying, and there's a big risk for isolation and withdrawal. So that's the risk. There's some good studies actually done by the University of Pennsylvania that took college students. This was published, I think, in 2020 or 2021 and split them into two groups. And one group used social media, continued as usual, although they were asked to pay attention to it. The other group was kind of put on a diet of social media and asked to limit their social media use to 10 minutes a day per platform. And I think, yeah, the platforms change so quickly. So I think it was Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. 
And in as few as six weeks, the students who were on the diet, the social media diet, had markedly less depression and anxiety than the students who had the usual diet. So there's no question social media burdens us in some mental health ways, often leading to disconnection, withdrawal, and certainly psychological loneliness, if not existential spiritual loneliness, if you wonder, what am I doing doom scrolling my Instagram feed? We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mina B. I really like how you're also framing it around the different ways that loneliness in many ways is a crisis. And you talk about that in your book, Project Unlonely. And I really like this declaration that this is a crisis that we're in and being disconnected is not really helpful for our well-being. And so can you share with us what the mental, emotional, and even physical side effects are to loneliness? Absolutely. So I think loneliness has been recognized and had been known for a long time as a major risk to mental health. It's the biggest preventable risk factor for this classic triad of mental health challenges, depression, addiction, and suicidality. One of the challenges with measuring loneliness and its relationship to these mental health disorders is there's a relationship between loneliness and these mental health disorders that goes in both directions. So if you're lonely, it increases the risk that some abusable substance will be an attractive distraction from your pain of not being connected, right? Whether it's alcohol, opioid, and so on. But also as you get further into the addiction cycle, you start withdrawing and it increases your risk for loneliness. You know, you stop having the conversations with caring family members or friends that could kind of pull you out of what's often a very self-destructive cycle by expressing concern, care, kindness, these kind of things, right? So, you know, it's a negative cycle. The same is true for thoughts of self-harm and suicidality. So this is really one of the big challenges of loneliness. It literally changes how our brains work. So we start to withdraw that contact with others is viewed as increasingly risky. So we avoid it even when it's exactly what we need to break out of the negative mental health cycle. Mm. So that's the mental health problem. And I think it might be interesting to those listening in that over the last 20 years is much better science that our physical health is impaired also. So you may have heard that being lonely increases risk of early death substantially. It's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that's even when you factor out and don't include deaths from overdose or deaths from suicide. Most of those deaths are cardiovascular. And it went to the point where after some careful research, the American Heart Association published a science advisory just about a year ago. It was a year ago, August. Basically, that loneliness won't just make you miserable. It'll kill you. It'll increase your risk of heart attack or stroke or death from either by 30%. Loneliness also increases the risk for diabetes, dementia, gastrointestinal disease, and cancer. And people then, how does it do that? Well, it turns out that loneliness as a brain state increases inflammation, reduces immune function. These are all critical physiologic ways that our bodies protect us from illness. And when they're impaired, we're more susceptible. 
Wow. You know, this is really eye-opening. And I'm really happy that this research is really coming to the forefront. And I'm really happy that people like you are writing these amazing books so that people can really get the resources that they need to shift this. Because I think for a really long time, when we're talking about mental health, we're not necessarily talking about the importance of connection. And so I'm curious from your work and even the work you talk about in your book, how can we use connection and community as a catalyst for decreasing this feeling of loneliness and really shifting this epidemic that we're currently in in society? Well, that's a question that, as you might imagine, occupies a lot of my thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm delighted to take a shot at answering it. And, And first, it's a complicated answer because it's a complicated question. Yeah. You know, loneliness impacts our mental health, our physical health, but it also impacts, as I said, how we make sense of the world. So as we get lonelier and lonelier, the world starts feeling like a riskier and riskier place. So it's harder to take that chance of smiling at a stranger or, you know, waving to someone kind of across the room and inviting the kind of conversations that connect us. So that gets harder and harder. So what do we do about it? And, you know, I think there's several things we can do, but it starts with, you know, podcasts like yours where we create awareness, we have conversations around it, we reduce the stigma around it so people will have those conversations and then begin to slowly take useful steps for them that will help them be unlonely because part of the puzzle is it's both a deeply personal issue to be lonely or unlonely, but it's also a societal issue and they're happening at the same time. You know, I'm curious to know as well, because you brought this up earlier, you talked about the concept of belonging. And I know over the last few years as well, we've shifted to this work from home environment, which is increasing loneliness for certain people. There are people who are loving it. Like, I'm never going back to the office. And there are some people who are like, you know what? I really do miss the camaraderie that I used to receive when I went to work. And now I'm just working from home. I see the same people every day. And so I'm curious to know, what can workplaces actually do to play a role in cultivating belonging, but also combating loneliness that their employees might be experiencing? Very timely question as we start to figure out what the new normal of post-pandemic workplaces are like. The general thinking is we're going to stay hybrid for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some jobs which just are and always will be face-to-face, right? You know, if you're on a kind of meet the people kind of thing and you have to be out there. You know, by the way, this was part of why There's so much residual challenge in those professions because people have gone through a very distressing three, three and a half years, and they're still in some state of recovery from that. But if you if you look at a more typical workplace setting where you would go to work and spend time, you know, with a group and so on, the general thinking is hybrid workplace will be with us for a while. So the real interesting design question is how do we make that hybrid workplace as connecting as possible, as belonging? oriented as possible. And there's quite a bit we've worked on and done research on for that. So I mentioned Project Unlonely and the three goals to increase awareness of loneliness, reduce stigma and make programming available. But it's important to know we also address three, actually four major audiences. So one of those is the workplace. 
And so we've been able to see that inviting people to connect, even on Zoom in workplace settings, through some of the strategies that we found to be effective through our programming, sometimes it's a combination of some mindfulness activities to make everybody present together, to be aware together, and then some creative making of one sort or another. It could be drawing, it could be writing. But then the critical part is the sharing of that in the conversation. And then suddenly people are connected authentically, even though they may be hundreds of miles apart in a distance workplace setting. Now, you can't be doing this all the time, so you want to factor this into the work. Maybe you make it connected Tuesdays or something <laughs> where, where it becomes part of what you look forward to. In our foundation, as small as we are, we do these connected sharings at our weekly team meeting as a way to stay in touch with each other, even though as a small group, we're unusually interactive and it makes all the difference. Mm. For the person who feels resistant, to that, right? Because I love that you said earlier that the lonelier and lonelier you are, the more you may see everything as a threat. And so it kind of interferes with your ability to smile at a stranger or even say hello. And I imagine if you're connecting via Zoom, you know, breakout sessions, right? Am I going to answer the questions or is this my opportunity to just drop off the call altogether, right? And so I'm curious for the person who has found themselves honestly, in this dark space where they've just been retreating from people, even from their colleagues, their friends, how can they start to learn to integrate back into society? Yeah. Part of the integration is not just into society, but integrate back into themselves. Mm-hmm. Because that non-integration is part of what disconnects us. But let me, let me try to make it a little more practical for people who may be experiencing these feelings. So one very important thing that I think is useful for people to know about loneliness is how they frame it. So it's not a disease. As human beings, we all feel lonely from time to time. So it's a problem when it becomes excessive or the depth and intensity of it is very high. But it's important to know that if you're having even those very intense feelings, to not be embarrassed about it. It's not your fault. You know, we live in a disconnected world. And one way to really move towards that acceptance of it's not your fault is to recognize or think about loneliness as what it is, which is a signal that there's a kind of connection you need, just like thirst is a signal we need hydration. It's very rare to find someone who feels embarrassed about being thirsty. Why embarrassed about being lonely. And it's because there's a cultural narrative around being lonely, that it means we're inadequate in some way, we're unattractive in some way, and we start to internalize those feelings. It's a form of self-induced trauma. And then you become less and less reluctant to take the risk of exposing yourself, making yourself vulnerable, which is key to having an authentic connection. So a lot of it's in that first framing right? The loneliness is a signal. And then spending enough time with yourself that you can say, okay, what type of loneliness am I experiencing? Is it psychological loneliness or do I have plenty of friends? I just don't feel meaningfully connected to them, right? So then that becomes a little more like spiritual and existential. Or I worry that because of some trait or characteristic I have, everything from being overweight to thinning hair, I mean, you name it, you know, we're, we're so obsessed with our appearance, you know, it's not hard to feel inadequate in this culture. And, you know, so you figure out what it is. So that's the first step 
is to just calm down, take a breath. <laughs> All of us can find a path to authentic mm -hmm. connection. So, and then it comes down to then what do you do? And we talk a lot about this, you know, in the book, you know, there are different circumstances where loneliness is encountered. We call them territories. I call them territories in the book. Uh, one of them is trauma. You know, we did talk about that, but if you're still in a sustained trauma situation, whether it's domestic recovery from domestic violence, military trauma, and so on, that's going to make you very nervous about taking the risk of being hurt again. So that slows you down. But another territory where loneliness is often encountered is illness. You know, we talked about diabetes and any chronic illness, any serious chronic illness tends to make people feel like they're different from other people. And then they start to think, okay, well, how do I adjust and so forth? But also catastrophic illness like cancer or some very devastating neuromuscular diseases. Then people also have, you might call the spiritual loneliness. I mean, am I facing the end of my life? Yeah. And how do I connect with the challenging feelings often associated with death and dying in our culture? And there's some other territories too, like aging, which I mentioned difference, whether it's uh, gender, race, socioeconomics, and so on, or as you mentioned, the difference of the modern world where social media is telling us like our value and our self-worth. Mm. You know, what I really love about that is the territories in particular is it helps us to really recognize those different domains that can pop up in our lives where we might start to feel a little more disconnected. And so even when you talk about experiencing a chronic illness, for example, especially if you develop an illness as you get older, right, the shift that comes with that and even the grief. And you saying that made me think of the other side of loneliness that I would love for you to touch on, which is how can we as a society, as friends, as partners, be more intentional about investing in our relationships, especially you have this friend who was just diagnosed or you see a parent who is aging, right? You talked a lot about the person who experiences the loneliness, but how can people offer support to those who might be experiencing loneliness? And how can we just learn to show up better to continue to cultivate connection and community in our lives? Well, you know, that question has been kind of interthreading the big mm -hmm. religions for thousands of years. You know? <laughs> How can we be kinder and gentler with ourselves that's and our right. community and ourselves? So, of course, it's not a question that's going away either. Yeah. And I think it's the critical question, really, for our current time. How can we recognize that we're not alone in the world? It's filled with other people, too. And many of these people are going through unbelievable challenge of pain discomfort, loss, and so on. And even though it may feel counterintuitive, anything we do to help them connect, connects us to a bigger, more universal story where we feel that we belong to the universe of human beings. And the entry ticket into that can be as simple as a kind word, an invitation to someone to sit and, you know, have a beverage with you and Sure, you can ask them, well, how are you doing? But a lot of people aren't ready to say how they're doing, right? Particularly men for all bunch of cultural reasons. But if you can give them something they can share authentically, you know, if it's somebody older and they have kids to talk about their kids, if it's someone who loves nature to talk about time in nature, something that brings them out 
and away from the particular pain of whatever is disconnecting them into a bigger story, into a bigger narrative. And that's where you can often connect. And it's a beautiful and sustaining moment that nurtures both the connector and the person being connected. Connected. That's so beautiful. And I think it gives us something to be intentional about and really thoughtful when we're making connections. Jeremy, this has been such a wonderful conversation. And I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests before we exit the show, which is what does community care mean to you? Wow, what a beautiful connection. So it is what we're talking about. I mean, before you can care for a community, you have to acknowledge there is community and you have to know that you're part of that community. It's not out there and you're here. It's this paradoxical thing like, you know, in physics that, you know, light can be a wave and a particle at the same time. We're both independent and fully interdependent at the same time. And I think a big part of caring for community is recognizing that we are community and it's a form of (laughs) self-care. At the same time, it's a form of caring for others, of course. Of course. Thank you so, so much, Jeremy, for that beautiful response and just all of the insightful things that you shared with us today. So I know your book recently launched. And so if you can tell us where can we find Project Unlonely and also how can people stay in touch with you and your work? Well, let's start with staying in touch. So please come and visit our website. It's www.artandhealing, all spelled out, .org. And uh, and sign up. We have actually fun newsletters that sometimes come with creative content like short films that touch on the subject of being connected and community and so on. You can have conversations, watch those films with other people, something we call the Unlonely Film Festival. So come sign up so we you can be part of our community. And then the second thing is to connect with us, connect with yourself. Because that's really what builds community and gives you a sense of how important it is to invite creative expression as just one more modality to be authentically alive. And there's no doubt in my mind that it's an incredibly important way to be as healthy and well as you can be. As far as the book goes, you can order it online. I personally love to support my independent local bookstores. So please do whatever you do to have a book and reading a book be part of your life. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And as it was shared, Project Unlonely is officially out. So go ahead and grab your copy. And Jeremy, thank you so much for all of your wonderful responses and being a part of the show today. It's a pleasure. And thank you for the really important work you do, building and sustaining community. It's really quite beautiful. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this conversation informative, please share today's episode with your friends and on your social media accounts. And of course, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the Very Well Mind podcast as we explore the power of community.